I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to I'm Interested. This is week two of this season, and I'm really excited that my guest today is going to be Ahmad Rashad, who has one of the most interesting stories of any legendary media member that I can think of in sports. Um, Wait until you hear how Ahmad Rashad went from being what was a terrific football player to one of the best-known sports broadcasters, particularly involving the NBA, having nothing whatsoever to do with his football career. He got there the hard way. He earned it. Um, And I think you will be fascinated to hear that along with his stories of hanging out with so many of the most famous people in the world, including, of course, Michael Jordan. But there are stories in here about Howard Cosell and there were stories about Michael Jackson and... So I'm really looking forward to you getting to hear my conversation with Ahmad. But I thought I would start, since, of course, we think so much about Michael, by telling you two quick stories about Michael Jordan, maybe my two favorite stories from covering Michael, which I did as a beat pretty much every day from 1992 through 1996. Um, And the first one was when he returned after playing baseball, and it's the legendary double nickel game. And this is a story that I love to tell. I was back in my hometown of New York City because Jordan and the Bulls were at the Garden, and he hadn't really gone off yet. He came back with 17 games left in that season in 95. And Jordan had taken a couple of games where he looked rusty. Number 45 did not look like number 23 had looked. He looked a little rusty. And then, of course, he went into the Garden, and he wound up scoring 55 points and then threw a great pass to Bill Wennington for an uncontested dunk to win the game. So all the rust was definitively kicked off. But the story I love to tell is that I was walking into the media entrance of the garden on 33rd street and eighth Avenue about an hour and a half before the game. And I've got my credential in my hand so that I can get in through security. And someone just yells out at me, Hey, I wasn't even a remotely famous person at that point. Someone just looks at me and says, Hey, I'll give you 5,000 bucks for that credential. And so I watched that game from a bar across the street, 33rd Street. I walked right across, and I watched it from the bar because 5000 bucks is a lot of money. <laughs> now, I love telling that story, and I used to just assume everyone knew I was joking. Now I feel the need to insert to the end of the story, and obviously I'm kidding. I didn't take the 5000 bucks. I went into the arena, and I covered the game. Because last time I told that story, people suggested that they thought it wasn't true. And so I, I, I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. I covered the game. But my favorite memory of Jordan actually comes from baseball. Michael Jordan was playing baseball, and I was there watching it. And Jordan, as you may recall, if you're old enough to remember, you may. It was a humiliating beginning to his baseball career. Sports Illustrated did a story in which they put on the cover of their magazine that Michael and the White Sox were embarrassing the sport of baseball. And Jordan was hitless through several games to begin his baseball career. And he was frustrated, and I think he was embarrassed. And I was traveling up and down the west coast of the state of Florida covering all of his games, and there were only about three or four of us reporters who were there. And I was there the night he got his first hit. And I'm telling you right now, it was not a screaming line drive off the left center field wall. 
Michael Jordan got fooled on a curveball, swung out of his shoes, and managed to hit a little dribbler that he topped up the third base line, and he beat it out for a base hit. And after the game, the three or four of us who were there to cover it went down to the locker room to interview Michael, and he was being given a beer shower. All of his teammates were pouring beer all over him. Um because they were celebrating his first hit. And he was stripped to the waist. He was wearing just his baseball pants, no shirt. And he had a cigar in his mouth. And he had a bat in his hands. And he then spent a few minutes talking with me and the few other reporters who were there. And then we were leaving. And I was walking out the door. And something moved me to turn around and look back. And I'm very glad I did. I will be glad of that for the rest of my life. Because I turned around and there was Jordan again, covered in cheap beer, in a tiny little locker room, smaller than my high school's locker room was, at the spring training facility of some team in Florida. And the look on his face, this is a man that I had seen climb the tallest mountains in sports. He had already by that time won three NBA championships and two Olympic gold medals and a national championship in college. And yet the expression on his face of satisfaction and pride at that base hit was different from, but in some ways equal to, the satisfaction that I saw in his face in any of those other moments. And I've always thought that it was a lesson in life from that. And that lesson has to do with celebrating the dribblers. Not everything is going to be a line drive that you smash off the wall. But you hit a dribble up the third baseline and you beat it out. That's worthy of celebration, too. That's a moment for Michael I will never forget. I also want to let you guys know about another project I'm working on. It's called Better Days. If there's a game someone's betting on it, it's a t- terrific new TV show that I couldn't be more proud of. You can stream Better Days, the new stories about epic sports betting and stories by the betters themselves. Hosted by me, you can stream new episodes every Thursday only on ESPN+. So now the table is set. Here comes the main event. My interview with Ahmad Rashad in three, two, and one. I am delighted to welcome to this conversation today the great Ahmad Rashad, who has had one of the really interesting careers in sports broadcasting in my lifetime. But as I said to him a moment ago, and he is someone that I remember so vividly from the 90s when I was a young reporter covering the Chicago Bulls and Ahmad was around as one of the fixtures of NBC's coverage of the NBA, that you somehow, Ahmad, 25 or so years later, look younger now than you did then. And that, not only is it not reasonable, but it's, it's bordering on frightening. Do you have any tips? I believe there is a picture up in the attic. Oh, <laughs> as long as I keep it. You know what? I approach life the same all the time. And I always felt like when you get old, that your approach to life changes somewhere down the line. And you become like a stogie or old. And I never let that happen. I grow up every day. I feel, every, I feel great all the time. I am never out of shape. I work out every single day. I haven't been out of shape ever. Um, and I take good care of my body. And that's, I, I also, I just think it, well, also it's got to be your parents, one or the other, but I just, the way you approach things are the things that keep things light. Life's about being happy, as happy as you can all the time. Always look at the bright spot rather than the, the negative side of it. So I've been able to do that a lot 
and it's it works for me. Fascinating to me. So the first thought that I would bring into this conversation is this. You have become, over the course of time, so well-known as a broadcaster of the NBA. What percentage of people that you encounter do you think generally know that you were the fourth pick in the NFL draft, caught almost 500 passes and 44 touchdowns? Only if the people are from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and, and other than that, it's like I've had people. One of the things, I was just talking about this the, the other night. Uh, you know why I didn't with last night with Fran Tarkenton? Really? Yes. It was just, man, we had such a wonderful time and great talk. But my daughter was there, who's 32. You know how she's on a show called Billions? Oh. So, so she was there, and it reminded me of the time that when I finished playing football, my goal was to do television so well that you forget I was a football player because that was over with, and I was trying to move forward. So one day she came home, comes home from school. She's like in the sixth grade, and she goes, there's a kid in my class that said he wants your autograph because he says you played for the Vikings. Did you? <laughs> right then I realized maybe I should put some of that crap back up on the wall. <laughs> maybe I'd gone too far with this. But that was like the stigma was like, you know what? Okay, because that's what I was trying to do. That was, that was then, you know, this is, this is now. That's so interesting to me. Were you purposely trying to distance yourself from it, or was it just something you wanted to move on to the next thing? Was there something about football that you wanted to distance yourself from for some reason? No, it was the, it was the same thing as what, when you finish high school, you're really finished with it. And you finish college, you're really finished with it. I finished football. That wasn't my life. You know, that was a very small part of my life. And I was 30 years old. I got a lot of time to go. So I wanted to go gung-ho onto the other. And I never wanted to be a football analyst because they replaced that guy every three or four years. Hmm. I didn't want to be, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I want to sit in the other chair. I want to be able to do all sports. And that was the thing that led me to NBC because when I finished playing football at, at, at Minnesota, I had offers from all three networks at that time. There was only three at that point. And uh, ABC wanted me to do football. CBS wanted me to just do football. NBC, uh, Mike Weisman, he wanted me to do all sports, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a broadcaster like yourself. That's fascinating. What made you decide that you could do that? That's, that is more groundbreaking than I realized. And it may not sound that way to younger people today, but that would have been a very unusual career path at the time that we're talking about. What made you think you could do that when I, I can't think of practically any other players of your era that made that transition. Well, and, and, and also to double that, there weren't any African-Americans. There was Irv Cross who did a little football. That was about it. They had Brian Gumble who did a little football. And, and that was it. But, you know, I, I always, when I was in college, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a sportscaster. Hmm. And so while my last five years in Minnesota, I, were, I had a radio show that I did uh, every day. I had a television show that I did uh, Monday night. Uh, I did Sunday night right after the game, a live show. And then I did a Monday at 5 o'clock. And then I did a Thursday. But on the Thursday night shows, this is local, local television, they let me do a, a story or, or something on anything, any sport. So I covered the, the state high school basketball tournament or the state high school uh, uh, hockey tournament. I did all kinds of stuff that are that Thursday and I produced them. I got one out and shot the thing. I wrote all of it and I did that for five years. So by the time that 
I finished playing and I was getting these offers from, from these different networks. When you first saw me on television, you went, hey, that guy's a natural. I was not a natural. I had five years of every day after practice, I went to work. I went to WCCO every night after practice working on the next step. And so by the time it got to be, you know, my last year there, my decision was, you know, I, I'm kind of tired of playing football. And I was still at the top of my career now. But I, I had an opportunity to take that step with NBC that let me do everything. And that's kind of the way that started. You know, it started, I did football and I, did, I hosted four Olympics. You know, I did Major League Baseball. I did all those things like I did, you know, when you come in on the weekends, you got to be there all day and do every sport they're doing in the course of the day. I enjoyed doing that because that's the, the way I was going. There was a, a, another fellow, I don't, you're not too young. You remember Ed Bradley? Of course. 60 Minutes? Yes, of course. My mentor. Every day we had a conversation. We'd talk about everything. And I never forgot that the thing that he told me that was most important, and I think it's what I do best, he said, any, any interview is not a question and answer. It's a conversation. So when you make it a conversation, it's just easy between the two of you. You're having a normal conversation, and your audiences are flies on the wall. So it's never like you sit somebody down and go, what about this? What about that? Or, you know, you, you, you set them up and then have a crazy question at the end. You know, what about your sister that went to jail? Whoa. <laughs> so crazy stuff like that. So. You know, I, I, and I, and I listened to him all the time. And those are the things that I wanted to do. And I just, you know, I think that if you ever think of anything that I've done, they've always been nice and easy and fun, you know, and, and, and the, the, the person that I'm interviewing is very comfortable. And that was sort of uh, the thing that I brought to, to television with myself, which I really wanted to do for that, that amount of time. For younger people listening to this, Ed Bradley was a legendary journalist for decades best known for his work on 60 Minutes, which was, and I think remains the, the gold standard of news and information interview programs. How did you come to know him? How, how did you have that relationship with Ed Bradley? Well, Ed Bradley was a sports, uh, you know what's so, so funny, and, and you'll understand this, I say, one of the things that, of the people that I got to know, they knew me as the football player. Mm -hmm. So Ed Bradley was like, oh, my man from Minnesota. Yeah, da, 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 da. that's how we met. And we continued on that thing. And <laughs> when I think of Ed Bradley, we were both, Ed, Brad, Ed and I were hanging out. We used to hang out with Jimmy Buffett all the time. And I found myself on a stage playing a tambourine with Ed Bradley behind Jimmy Buffett. And I just was, you know, I'm playing the tambourine. I'm looking around thinking, holy smokes. <laughs> We're on the stage up here with Jimmy Buffett. And it was, it was just one of those things that I just sort of think about. But he's, it, that, I mean, that's kind of the way that was. Uh, that's how I got to know him. And he was a big, he was also a big basketball fan. He was from Philadelphia. And he used to be, everybody that came out of Philadelphia knew Ed Bradley. Because he would do stories around the, um, uh, you know, the blacktop games where they played during the summer, all those different things. He was a guy that was there kind of putting it together. He was like the commissioner of that thing. Those are things you never knew about him because you always thought he was so serious on 60 Minutes. But he was a really serious basketball fanatic. He was. You were exactly right. That is exactly the impression I had of him. 
was that he was a very serious journalist and you would see him there with Morley Safer and Mike Wallace and, and the <laughs> idea that he'd be on stage with Jimmy Buffett, I will admit, is something that I would never have considered under any circumstance. That's right. That's right. You know who else is on the stage too? Ted yeah. Kennedy. <laughs> it was just it was just crazy. It's like, okay, I guess that's kind of crazy. Wait a minute. So I know a little bit about journalism here. And there's no way I just let that go. How did you wind up on a stage with Jimmy Buffett, Ed Bradley, and Ted Kennedy? Well, it was in, it was in uh, Denver, and we were all out there kind of hanging out. And I already knew Jimmy Buffett and, and, and Ed. I knew them already before, but he was doing a concert that day. But we would go and play tennis at his house. Play tennis, tennis, then what it was. So at this party, uh, I mean, at, not at a party, but at the concert, rather than us standing in the audience, we all just went and you know, sat behind the stage. And at some point, it was like, come on, come on, we're all getting up. And so we all got out there and we, you know, got to plan and the whole thing. And it was one of the greatest nights ever. We had so much fun. But in my mind, I kept looking around about who these people were up here and who's going to believe me. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Ahmad Rashad. All right, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about sports because I think that's what most people listening to this will we'll be interested to hear. So you sure. were in the center of all of the action in the NBA of the 90s, which uh -huh. was a golden era. So it's Bird and Magic, it's the Dream Team, and of course, Michael and the Bulls. And I think a lot of people got to see over the course of this summer, got a taste of all of that by watching the documentary films on ESPN. But what words as one who was really much closer to it than, than probably any other journalist or reporter. How would you describe what the league was like at that time? Guys didn't leave and go play together on separate teams. You know, if you weren't going to win the county, you brought your guys to the park, and that's the way it was. It wasn't like, hey, why don't we get this guy now? Yeah, we'll all go play on the same team, and we'll win a championship. It was not that way at all. It was also a much tougher game. Defense wise, you know, you remember how the Pistons used to win all those years. They only scored like 80, 90 points and they'd win games. Nobody scored 110. You know, it just wasn't happening during that time. And it just, I think there was more rivalries and a lot of really good rivalries. The only thing that happened, even when the Bulls won for that long time, there still had, there was a, the other teams, the next five teams were all really good too. It, to the point where any one of those might have won the championship if the Bulls had not won it. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, we had, oh, even uh, Charlotte had a really good team down at that time, but they had all these, and it was kind of fun to see these rivalries. Uh, you know, it was magic against Bird, and it wasn't to the point where, hey, me and Bird might get together and play on the same team. That was never happening. But there was things you sort of grew up with. If you grew up on a team that was your team, it was pretty much your team. It was the same guys on that team all the time. You didn't have to change and go, number 24 this year is a guy I really love. Next year, it's some other guy. It, it wasn't that way at all. But I thought that the timing of it all, you know, with the whole hip-hop culture, all that stuff just came down as one. And it was down. It was so much fun to watch. There was so much drama. Um, and for me, fortunately... When NBC got basketball is when uh, I got a call from David Stern, and it was like, you know, we have this show that we're going to do that 
you know, we're going to do this deal with NBC and we have this extra half hour uh, that we want, we want to take and make a basketball show out of it. But I think it would be better if you also are involved in the game of the week so that your credibility would be that you know basketball as opposed to spinning a football guy. And that's the way that kind of first started. So they had a, um, they had a, um, a, a game that Magic Johnson used to do every summer called Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was a, it was a, all the all stars came to play in this game. They all came to LA and they put on this big thing and they'd have this big game. That was the, you know, that was, I, I have to, I have to sort of tell you that when I was in college, I was a huge basketball fan, knew all the NBA players at that time. So it wasn't foreign to me. I knew all, I knew Kareem and, and Lucius Allen and, 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 and Irvin John knew all those guys. So when they had this game, the first guy I met, was Michael Jordan. Now, I had never met Michael before. The only reason that I used to watch him in college is John McEnroe used to call me all the time and say, hey, man, have you seen this guy in North Carolina? It's like, no, nah, I haven't seen him. He said, you got to watch him. Michael Jordan, he's this and that and the other. And every week he was, hey, you, did you see him? Did you do this and that and the other? So we met that night and we just sort of hit it off. And I said, hey, how you doing? He was, how you doing? And so we changed numbers. And from that day on, we probably talked on the phone them near every day for well, how many years ago is that now he lives across the street so it's you know it's, it's one of those kind of things and it was so fortunate for me is that i had that sort of you know i had an in you know the game of the week was always the shot it was the best team it was always chicago bulls the player of the week was always michael jordan who was my really good friend michael jordan so it was always access and it got it got to be this way is I would fly to Chicago on Saturday night. I'd spend the night at his house. We'd drive to the game together. And then we'd get out of the car. He'd go play the game. I'd do the game, the interview. And that's kind of the way that went for years and years and years and years. So it was fun. And it was a lot of fun to be on the inside of that, uh, as fun as it could be. You know, I had a sort of a free reign. I could walk in and out of the locker room. You know, I could, it was just absolutely a lot of fun. So I think what many people would wonder, having seen The Last Dance, is the person that Michael Jordan emerged from those films to seem. How, how accurate do you think that is? How, how close to the real Michael Jordan, who is who was as famous as he is, he has sort of removed himself a little bit from the public eye since he stopped playing. He's not one who goes out and does all sorts of appearances and he doesn't do talk shows. People don't know him the way they know Magic and some of the other stars of his day. So the person that he actually is, how close to that do you think was the impression that most people got from the films? Right on the head. And his attitude is like this. I'm, never, I'm not talking anymore. You just saw it. That's it. I don't have to explain anything. I'm not gonna explain anything. This is where it went. And so the people that you and I know how sports goes, that it's a, it's, a, it's a closed society. There are things that are said that really can't be said in public, but they can be said in the locker room with closed doors. But since the time that all of that's opened, now it's gotten a little, you know, people are saying, oh, can you believe he said that to the other guy? Well, you should have seen what he said to him when the door was closed. And that's, the, and that's, and that's what that show is about. You know, it's like, okay, is that what happened? Yeah, that's what happened. If it were to happen now, it would have been front page news everywhere. They're feuding, they're fighting, all that kind of stuff. But back in the day, there was a sort of, you know, there's a, a fraternal 
sort of thing that what happens behind those doors, that's the end of it. And Michael sort of opened those doors for the last dance and you either understand it or you, or you don't understand it, but he's never gonna explain it. So I was around just as a reporter in Chicago and I got to see it and I've told people for the last 30 years that I, I believe at that time he was genuinely the most famous person in the world. How, yeah. how would you describe what it was like trying to get from point A to point B with him? People have asked me, would you trade places with him? And I've said, I'm really not sure. There seem like so many wonderful things about living that way and so many challenging things. What was it like to try and just, I mean, I'm assuming you can't go to a movie. You can't just walk into a restaurant. What, what is it like when he is at the top of his popularity? Uh, I think that it was, he couldn't go to the mall. He couldn't go to the store. He couldn't go to, <laughs> to get gas. There is nothing, all those little normal things he couldn't do. And he was always locked up in a hotel room. So no matter what, and we, if we were at the game, wherever it was we'd meet, we'd always be in the hotel and never leave it. Never leave the room. And every city in America where they played games, it was always, we always had adjoining rooms or rooms near each other so that we never left the hotel. It was just, and I, I used to think that this is not that fun. You know, you, you can't do anything. Or, or if you came down to the lobby, they'd have the police everywhere and the buses and all the people surrounding the hotel. It had to be like the Beatles. You know, that's all I can figure. But I know that it wasn't. And he does. He, he, so his whole thing was he doesn't like play golf. There's only a few people that can go on the golf course. You know, he go play golf and play golf all, all day because there's only a few things that he, you know what? I don't think he's been to the, I think, I don't think he's been to the mall here. <laughs> Cause I think I asked him what that, about something about going to the mall. I was like, man, I ain't going to the mall. He's, he's never been to a mall. Um, so I don't know. There's always ups and downs with that. You know, I, if you want to give up your whole life, that's one thing, but what's that worth? And as he says now, his time is his most important thing in his life, the time that he has. And he makes sure that he doesn't spend it in ways that are running through a mall. Speaking of running through a mall, one time I, I took Michael Jackson in a mall in Hawaii, and he put this mask on at one end. <laughs> First, he, he made me take him to the mall, right? Go to the mall, took him to the mall. So he got a mask on one end. He was like in dressed up weird. And so he started walking down the middle of the mall. And as more and more people recognized him, he started jogging to the point where he was sprinting all the way out the back end of the door. I was thinking, man, this guy's nuts. <laughs> May I ask, because I will confess in my research for this, I never came across Michael Jackson. How did you and Michael Jackson happen to go to a mall together? Well, now when I was playing in the off season, I lived in LA and on Sundays, we'd play basketball at this church, uh, a church gym, and all his brothers were there. And we all played, and that's how we initially got to meet each other. Now, I was in Hawaii with my wife, and during the course of this week that we're in Hawaii, I took him on a ride in a golf cart. He had never been in a golf cart, but it was like, he would act like it was a ride at Disneyland. It was just a golf cart. It was like, wee! <laughs> it's, it's very weird, but a nice dude, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's how we ended up going to the mall, and I watched him run all the way through the mall until he got recognized. That is insane. May I ask, I don't know why I'm curious, did he play basketball like you played in a church? No, no, he would, he would bounce the ball on the side. He didn't really play in the game, but he could bounce the ball. And he, he was a pretty good athlete. 
he could like jump and run and all that kind of stuff. But the game wasn't him. But his brothers, Jackie, the older brother, was a pretty good basketball player. Yeah, I have a tough time picturing Michael Jackson playing basketball. I don't know why, but that was something <laughs> I couldn't picture. Yeah. Your stories are extraordinary. I want to finish by asking you about two people that I know you would have known well that we've lost in 2020. And the first of them is David Stern. And when he died, I did an essay on, on, on my show on Get Up in which I said, when you look at the explosion of popularity of professional basketball in this country and across the world over the last 30 or 40 years, and you were to put together a list of the five most important people that created that, David Stern has to be on that list right there with Michael Jordan and anyone else you put on it. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on David Stern, both his impact and the man that you knew. David Stern served up Michael Jordan to the world. Without David Stern, it, I don't think basketball would have been the global sport that it was. And David had such great ideas. He was, he was a man of, when he made the decision, it got done. Everything got done when he was getting ready to do it. So he was a wonderful, he was like a, God, I, I, I almost get emotional talking about David Stern. That's how wonderful this man was. And he was one of these guys that always had something good to see us to say with a little this, that, and the other. He's also, he could pull you aside and say some crazy stuff to you, to you too. But he was just a wonderful, wonderful man that understood the social economic thing of the NBA, how big it could become. And, 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 and I say so that when I had this show, Inside Stuff, and we wanted to do you know, a feature, and he just gave me free run, free reign. It was like, like if I said, hey, let's go to Australia tomorrow and do a story on such and such. Plain gone, do it. Every, all of that. Just, and it, that was his thing. And he was, uh, he was a warm guy. He was kind of a tough guy, but if he liked you, you wasn't so tough. <laughs> but he was just a one of a kind. I, I think that uh, the league would have not grown or exploded the way it exploded without David Stern. And it was a whole different way. When he was a commissioner, he was the boss. You know, and all these guys that were sort of owned teams, they bought teams for, I don't know, $5 million or whatever it was. And he turned them people into like huge, it's different now because you have people that are really wealthy that, but those owners that, that he, he was dealing with were, were ones that sort of came in and they let him just run the show. Whatever you need to do, David, that's what we're going to do. He's just a wonderful man. I miss him. I miss him. He's just a, a, one of the greatest um, commissioners in any sport that there's ever been. For sure. And, the, and then the other that we lost. Well, uh, did I tell you now? So now let me just tell you this, but sure. here's how I, here's how I, here's how I met David for the first time. I was, um, I was in Howard Cosell's office and, and Howard Cosell was just talking. And so he picked up the phone and he just goes, David, say hello to I'm my brush eye. David picked up the phone. David, he goes, hey, hi, how you doing? <laughs> Nothing else to say. <laughs> Nothing else to say. So David and I would laugh about that the whole time. He said, remember that time Howard called you up? He goes, and that was it. Nothing more. That's it. Hey, how you doing? That was about the end of it. Can we talk quickly about Howard Cosell? So I will tell you that Howard Cosell is the reason that I do what I do. I wanted to be Howard Cosell as a kid. 
Um, I remember vividly, there was a restaurant on the Upper East Side of New York City when I was a kid called Jim McMullen's. Oh, was, yeah, yeah, I know McMullen, I know Jim McMullen. He was like a, I was a little kid. He was like a male model or something, right? I, my yeah, his, his wife was a model. We would eat there on, on, on our family's special occasions. If it was my mother's birthday or something, we would go there. It was that kind of restaurant. Yeah. And I, we were sitting there having dinner. I was a, a little boy. And all of a sudden, the entire room went silent. And everyone was looking. And obviously, someone very important had just walked in. And it was Howard Cosell. And he walked across the room. And everyone was just silent, staring at him, fixated. <laughs> on him. And I remember thinking to myself, that's who I want to be. I want to be that guy. <laughs> Tell me something about Howard Cosell. I never got to meet him. He, he died before I got involved in any of this. Tell me something about Howard Cosell. Hey, Greedy, this dude was the best. He was the absolute best. I, one time uh, in Minnesota, I, I, I think I might no, I guess maybe I did tell. One time in Minnesota, I was, they were getting ready to do a boxing match, and Ali was there, and I kind of went back, and I was talking to Howard Cosell, and they were, you know, getting the he was he had the voice over something, and so he was always show he was always a show off kind of you know, so he he gets the they hand him the the they hand him the tape and say we need uh, forty two seconds. Okay, go over and start. He thanks that thing and nails it in forty two seconds one time. I was shocked. It's like, how in the world? And he just like threw it back to the guy and kept talking that way. You know, rather than somebody go, wait, start over. Wait, let me do it again. Wait, we need three more seconds. 42 seconds on the nose and just kept going the other way. He also, I would go to, when I first moved to New York, I would go to his house to watch Monday night, Monday, uh, Monday night football or basketball or whatever it was. It wasn't Monday night football because he was working at. It was basketball and things like that. So he was, <laughs> he was, and he was always showing off. So there was a window that, into the apartment that went out the door. So he was over by the window and he opens the window and he's holding his toupee on with his hand like this. And he goes, his daughter, his wife, who took no from him at all, he goes, honey, I think Liza's home. <laughs> so, she goes, his wife goes, he's talking about Liza Minnelli and she's not home and stop showing off and sit down. <laughs> he was something, man. He was really, really something. I spent a lot of nice times with him when I moved to New York. I'd just go over to his apartment, sit around and watch TV and talk. Wow. I had no idea. That is fascinating. All right. I, I, the last one I wanted to ask you, and I, I fear that it's going to change our tone a little bit, unfortunately, but that, of course, is Kobe Bryant, who we also lost this year. Um, in, in an event that still doesn't seem real. I actually mentioned this on my radio show the other day, I think perhaps because with the pandemic that came almost immediately afterwards, everything has seemed surreal and nothing has been normal. There are times that I'm reminded that Kobe was killed this year and it, it still feels like a surprise. Um, and so I just wonder your recollections of him, obviously someone you would have known and covered when he first came into the league. What what are your recollections and thoughts about the great Kobe Bryant? You know, I feel the same way you do. Uh, it's like it never happened, but it did happen. And it just was, it was just a stop. It's just a stop. There's nothing after, all the way up to it. And it's just so, ah, it's just, it's just really, really one of the hardest things to sort of go through. But what a great kid he was. I got so many stories about him. That one I've told people so many times when he, he won always played Michael one-on-one, -on -one, 
you know, and when Michael had quit, we, we, we went to a game, and after the game, we go in this little room, and Phil's there, and Kobe's there, Michael's there, myself, and Phil's asking Michael to come out to practice, maybe, and come practice with us a little bit. And Kobe, without missing the beat, goes, yeah, come on out there so I can kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's the, so Michael's saying, whoa, 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 man, you can't guard me. Kobe goes, you can't guard me. This is a young kid like that, right? And he goes, yeah, you need some shoes, you need some stuff. I got stuff in my locker, just come on out and we can play. And it just kept going and going back and forth. And so finally when we left, as we're walking out to the car, Michael just looks over and he goes, you know what? I love that kid. He said, that kid, I'm telling you, he's serious too. He really thinks he could beat me. <laughs> so it was, it was one of those things, but he was always, and with Kobe, he always asked me what Michael did. I finally am telling him, he's like, I don't really know what the hell he did. What does Michael do? What would Michael do? Once you call him and ask him, and <laughs> don't keep asking me because I don't pay much attention. Well, what, what would Michael do? What would this do? He, just a good guy. I felt he was a little lonely. He didn't have a lot of friends. He didn't hang in a big circle. And he wasn't, he was just a little distant, just a little bit distant. But, a, but a, he would never play golf because he did not want to be beaten by me or anybody else. You know, I said, you're going to quit playing basketball. So at some point, you and I are going to play golf. Because nope, not playing golf. Because I I can't let you beat me, you know. <laughs> so things like that. But just a a great guy, just a great guy, and a big loss, a really really big loss. Ahmad, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I I have been again. I was a kid reporter when you were at at the very top, and I I viewed all of you guys at NBC, you and Costas and Marv Albert and Hannah and everybody. I looked up to you all so much. I thought that's who I want to be um someday in this business and so to have the chance to have this conversation with you and for you to share all these recollections it really means a lot to me so thank you very much i wish you nothing but great health and and i really appreciate this time hey, greeny i appreciate that so much because i've watched you for so long i'm a huge fan and for you saying those things about me if you ever saw me when i was little or whatever when you were little and everything that makes me feel so wonderful uh, you just keep doing what you're doing, man, because I'm telling you, you are the best. I really enjoy it every time you're on. What a fascinating discussion. What a fascinating person Ahmad Rashad truly is. And I am grateful to him for making this time for me. And I hope all of you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I will ask you this favor. If you enjoy long form interviews like this, I'd love to keep doing them. Here's how you can encourage everyone to uh, to continue this podcast. If you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, I'll know you like it. The people I work for will know that you're interested in it continuing, and we'll keep doing it. So I'd like to hear from you, and that's the way you can let me know. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm interested. And if you like it, we'll keep doing it. So thanks so much for being here this week. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, and I will see you soon. This is Greeny. I'm interested.